Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Can you all hear me okay? Seems very quiet today. Um, uh, it's great to see you all here. I think we're finally turning the corner towards spring in the middle of April, which seems a little crazy, but it's good to have it here. Um, we're really happy today to be presenting. I think this might be our first hyperbaric medicine co-sponsored Grand Rounds. Is that, is that right? So really, really pleased to have the section of hyperbaric medicine um, co-sponsoring today's Grand Rounds. And I'm going to welcome Jay Bucky, who's a professor of medicine and the section chief for hyperbaric medicine, to tell you a little bit about today's speaker. Um, I should probably change the slides over now. Do you? Do you oh, sure. That'd be great. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Well, thanks for coming out. It's a real uh, pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Steve uh, Tom. Um, he uh, got his uh, MD and PhD uh, from the University of Rochester. Um, then he went on to uh, do his internal medicine res residency, uh, rather internship at uh, the University of Maryland, and did his residency in emergency medicine uh, at UCLA. And then after that, uh, did a fellowship in undersea and hyperbaric uh, medicine at uh, Long Beach, uh, California. After that, uh, he was a professor of emergency medicine and director of the hyperbaric program at the University of Pennsylvania uh, for 27 years. And I don't know if you've ever seen the hyperbaric facility at the University of Pennsylvania, but it is really an awesome facility with an incredible history. They've done some really groundbreaking work in uh, diving medicine, and that tradition continues today. Um, Dr. Tom was lured away to the University of Maryland not uh, about in 2013, which is where he is now, and uh, is doing uh, a lot of interesting work, uh, I think. He's, He's published 130 peer-reviewed papers, many of which I uh, cite frequently. And, uh, and, and I also think he literally uh, wrote the book on uh, hyperbaric medicine. His book, The Physiology and Medicine of Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy, I think is uh, a really a landmark book in the field. And I have the Kindle edition, so I always have it with me uh, all the, the time. Um, and I'm really glad to hear, have him here today because there's really been a revolution in our understanding about the effects of hyperbaric oxygen. Um, there have been new findings about the effects on stem cell mobilization. There have been new findings about effects on inflammation, uh, effects on nitric oxide metabolism. Uh, free radical biology is an important factor. And Steve has really been in the forefront of a lot of these discoveries. So I'm very excited to have him uh, talk to us today. Thank you very much, Dr. Thom. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for, for having me here. It's been a real pleasure. It's a gorgeous countryside, just really impressive. Um, so I'm going to talk to you today about sort of a lot of general things about, about hyperbaric oxygen, um, talk about mechanisms uh, to, to try to give people sort of a sense of what the heck this stuff's all about. Um, we'll, we'll cover some on randomized trials, and, and I'll just say up front, we need lots more work in terms of really honing in on mechanisms and clinical uh, indications and, and clear efficacy. <clears throat> so the goals are, to summarize, I'll, I'll talk about a clinical case, which is one of our more emergent uh, sorts of indications for hyperbaric oxygen. So we'll talk about clinical stuff. Um, I want to explain the biochemical mechanisms of action of hyperbaric oxygen therapy because it, it's, for most folks, it's, it's not intuitively obvious at all uh, what happens. Just, you know, oxygen drowned. What, what's the big deal about giving more oxygen? And the point is the biochemistry changes rather profoundly. Um, we'll, we'll talk towards the end of, of the presentation about some of the risks which are really remarkably nominal, uh, but nonetheless, they are present there. And I have no conflicts of interest for any of this stuff. So, so oh, you know what? Let me just go back to, so, so this is actually the inside of the hyperbaric chamber that I ran at Penn for 27, 28 years. There's actually um, <clears throat> five separate connected chambers, kind of like gerbil cages. You could actually go one from the other uh, under pressure, which we've used on rare occasions. And the, the largest chamber here is what we used every day 
uh, clinically treatments at Penn, anywhere from 15 to 25 patients a day, uh, 24-7. We did a lot of emergency stuff. Anyway, moving on. So you throw someone in a hyperbaric chamber, you crank up the pressure. In, in the big chambers, the big chambers are pressurized with air, not pure oxygen, because that would be a fire hazard. But the small chambers like you have here are, are typically pressurized with pure oxygen. So you don't need a face mask or a hood or anything for oxygen delivery. So, so the pressure goes up. The typical pressure, therapeutic pressure, is uh, double atmospheric, two atmospheres to 2.8 or three atmospheres. On rare occasions for um, uh, air embolism cases, we would go up to as high as six atmospheres, but that was quite rare. Um, and then you provide someone extra oxygen. Now, so the oxygen goes up everywhere in the body that's perfused, and that's really sort of the key issue, is that if, if, if an area is ischemic, the PO2 changes virtually not at all uh, because of oxygen diffusion barriers. Um, so, so in terms of clinical indications, that's obviously one of the big things. A totally ischemic limb, guess what? You're not going to do anything to help this person. Um, and and so, so those issues come into play with, uh, with some of the patients we see. Um, so, so the oxygen goes up in the plasma, uh, and, and that's where the oxygen delivery issues arise in terms of the physiology, delivering oxygen. But then the PO2 goes up. Arterial PO2 is commonly in the 2,000 range uh, in a hyperbaric chamber, uh, which sounds cute. You know, you can take uh, all the blood out of a pig, and the pig will scurry around in a hyperbaric chamber. This was an experiment in the 50s to demonstrate you didn't need hemoglobin any longer with, with these high PO2s, which has nothing to do with clinical indications. Uh, but, but the PO2 is important in terms of, of changing the biochemistry. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of the talk today. Um, I, I like to give this slide up front just so people have somewhat of a roadmap of where we're going to go, um, so, so, which is sort of the punchline, really. Uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is oxidative stress in moderation. Uh, we would all be dead if we couldn't make free radicals for a lot of normal biology. And, 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 and virtually all aspects of, of hyperbaric oxygen therapy are related to a marginal to moderate elevation of oxygen and nitrogen-based free radicals. And they have effects on neutrophil function or what are sort of jargon called ischemia reperfusion events, which are far more about endothelial activation, I'm sure many of you are aware. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about stem cell mobilization. Some inflammation are actually anti-inflammatory effects of hyperbaric oxygen, and then augmentation of growth factors. And, and I put this at the bottom because some of these events actually happen during the, per the time the person's in the hyperbaric chamber. They, virtually immediate effects, minutes. Uh, to some growth factor effects, which are far more involved with new protein synthesis and can take many days commonly to actually see um, measurable changes. <clears throat> Start out with a case, just uh, to, to sort of give maybe a flavor of the kinds of patients that we see. So we're going to talk about a 68-year-old woman who had a flap reconstruction for complications, multiple surgeries, uh, external beam radiotherapy for recurrent basal cell carcinoma, and, and as goes most often with these patients, there's never one disease. Uh, so, so she had uh, type 2 diabetes, red diabetic retinopathy, and extensive smoking history with COPD. And also as happens in a hyperbaric program, which it, there's an education growth curve for everyone in the medical staff, uh, we'd like to see these, these sorts of compromised patients immediately. Uh, and virtually that never happens. So we're consulted six days after a flap reconstruction when overnight the flap suddenly became pretty ugly. Uh, so it didn't look good anyway. But this is a big pedicle that's been rotated up uh, for a very, very large uh, defect. Um, so so the, the overnight the flap becomes very uh, pale, poor perfusion, and, and there's breakdown along the margins uh, where it's attached to, to her, her normal face. Um, so, so the first impulse is, is, the, is the major pedicle uh, occluded. So angiography reveals that there's still arterial and venous flow, but it's the microvascular compromise. And, and, and as often happens with these things, 
It's the site where the anastomosis is occurring, where there's a lot of microangiopathy related to extensive uh, external beam radiotherapy prior to the major surgery. Anyway, so, so this was a very ischemic area uh, which was beginning to break down. So we're called six days after the event, and we go, well, okay, you know, we'll give it our best shot. So, so this is you start these people right away in the hyperbaric chamber, and then typically we treat two or three times a day for the first couple of days. <clears throat> Ultimately, it took 20 treatments because there's a, actually a change somewhat of, of the mechanisms of action. So acutely in something like this, where there's a lot of, of ischemia, uh, there's an endothelial activation, sort of the, the jargon of ischemia reperfusion, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. Um, and and, and there's, there's early effects of hyperbaric oxygen that can modify that response to, to microvascular compromise. But then over days to, in this case, weeks, there's an angiogenesis of that that, that occurs over days. It's, it's, it's a relatively slow process, which is why we ultimately treated this patient a whole total of 20 times. And, and so I'll start out. So this is three weeks later. Um, you, I'm, I'm not a surgeon, so I go, you know what? It still looks pretty crummy, but, but it's viable now, um, where uh, initially there was really major problems. That it hit overnight as if this whole area looked like to be entirely unzipping. And which could have potentially been a catastrophic failure of a very large flap. Uh, and that all just stopped. There was no further advancement of any ischemic process or, or degradation of the flap. It stabilized and then actually uh, re-annealed, and, and the patient did extremely well. Needs revision, which was going to be the case all along. But the point is we turned what would have been a catastrophe into something far better. <clears throat> so what's going on? So this is a patient with somewhat of, of moderate to small vessel disease predominantly, uh, where there's ischemia and then edema and then hypoxia with a vicious cycle. Um, and then there's obviously there's a whole array of events that happen as, as this sort of positive feedback process occurs. There's leukocyte reactions typically because of of endothelium that gets modified from uh, microvascular compromise, low flow, thrombosis, uh, the edema, the vascular leak uh, sort of leads to this progressive process with still more still activation. And, and hyperbaric oxygen acutely can, can interrupt this process. So everyone goes, well, duh, it's hypoxic. It's no longer hypoxic. But that's only the first step. And, the, the, that flap would only be not hypoxic when the person's in the hyperbaric chamber. So, so the typical protocol for hyperbaric oxygen, as I said, you know, two to maybe three atmospheres, depending upon what you're treating. But typically, the treatments are only 90 minutes to two hours. You'll be on that, and you start to worry far more about oxygen toxicity. So, so these treatments are relatively short. What about the other 22 hours in the day? And the point is, this short-term hyperoxia changes the biochemistry. And, and that's where we're going to spend um, the majority of, of the talk. Um, so, so when I'm talking to, well, I don't do a fellowship now, but when I used to teach fellows, um, you know, the point is uh, clinical indications for compromised flaps. Um, you want to think about hyperbaric oxygen, but it's always just an adjunct to make sure everything else is being done right. So you want to have the flap problem that's defined clinically or anticipated. Sometimes if, for example, uh, these patients sometimes with extensive radiation therapy have already failed one cycle, and they're coming back in for a, re a repeat reconstruction. So we already know these people are, are, are going to have trouble. And, and at Penn, we would commonly get these sorts of patients um, where they, we would take these patients straight away from the recovery room to get things started early. Um, you want surgical salvage is considered, so this, in this case, you want to make sure that the, the pedicle is viable before putting someone in the hyperbaric chamber. If there's no large vessel oxygen delivery, blood delivery, hyperbaric oxygen isn't going to do any good for you. Um, so so there's, use of hyperbaric oxygen is always selective you have to do a fair bit of thinking before 
throwing someone in the hyperbaric chamber, then you want to use it expediently. And, and what we did is actually supported by research. We'll talk about that actually towards the end of the talk uh, because I want to go back to sort of um, the, the roadmap here in terms of some of the chronology to give you some of the, of the mechanism, a handle on why someone would think that hyperbaric oxygen is going to do anything at all good for the majority of patients. <clears throat> so we'll start out, as I said, chronologically with some of the things that happen really, really early uh, when, when someone is in a hyperbaric chamber. So, so ischemia reperfusion, things all, the, the traditional notion is uh, cardiac arrest, uh, stopping blood flow, uh, restoring blood flow. But in that in interval of ischemia and then restoration of flow, there's a change in the endothelium uh, where formerly everything was fine in terms of a non-adhesive surface, um, but the endothelium changes when there's no flow. Uh, adhesion molecules are modified on the endothelial lining, uh, which the neutrophils, as they now pass through with restoration of blood flow, the neutrophils initially are, are sampling the endothelium with constitutive adhesion molecules. They see something they don't like, i.e. an activated endothelium. They now become activated themselves and firmly adhere to endothelial lining by so-called beta-2 integrins, cause microvascular damage, more endothelial changes, more activation of neutrophils, positive feedback loop, which is almost always bad for you in medicine, leading to tissue injury. And hyperbaric oxygen turns off that process. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. We actually did the first with any sort of surgical stuff. We, there was a guy made of a uh, plastic surgeon, Bill Zamboni, and we used to go to, to give lectures, commonly sharing a podium. I would be doing carbon monoxide poisoning. The, the endothelial activation in the brain from carbon monoxide is, for all the world, looks just like ischemia and reperfusion, except there is no ischemia. Um, it, it, but it has to do with chemical changes from carbon monoxide on the, in the perivascular space, which we can talk about at the end if you want to, but that gets a little bit off subject. Um, but, but then Bill was doing work with he, he a plastic surgeon who was just the very classical ischemia reperfusion. And then as we're sort of doing our work in our lab, we realized there's just a complete overlap, exactly the same thing going on in, in both very, very different diseases that you would think up front. One's clearly surgical, one's a toxic problem. But it all has to do with turning off of beta-2 integrins. <clears throat> it works terrifically well in animals. Turns out it works well in people. We published our first paper in, in humans in 97 where we took uh, a, a moderately large, I forget now, 20, 25 people. And, and we, you can draw their blood and assay beta-2 integrin function uh, in the lab. So everyone starts out by definition because there's a little bit of variability. We define it as 100%. 45 minutes in a hyperbaric chamber at either 2.8 or 3 atmospheres, the higher end of typical therapeutic protocols. And there's virtual complete turnoff of beta-2 integrin function. So this is after merely 45 minutes in hyperbaric oxygen. But by 24 hours, everybody's back to go. So it's a reversible phenomenon, which is actually a good thing, because if it was permanent turning off beta-2 integrin, we call that profound immunocompromise. That would be bad for you, obviously. So this is a temporary change that occurs in the neutrophils themselves. And this is a picture. Uh, in, the, in the biochemistry, again, we could talk about, but it would take all day, uh, but, but these are the references that we, we figured out exactly what's going on. And, and so this is a picture of a neutrophil adhering to a glass slide. And you're looking at filamentous actin there, uh, which is the green. Now, so this, so this is a cytoskeletal process where beta-2 integrins are randomly spread across the neutrophil membrane surface. And for them to stick, <clears throat> the beta-2 integrins need to migrate. And, and the term for that is capping. And this is a picture of the beta-2 integrins capped. They've come together to firmly adhere to the surface. So that's a picture of that. And then the, the microscopy yellow is an exact overlap. Um, and so you see that at the periphery. This is a neutrophil 
after hyperbaric oxygen. And, and the point there is, is the filamentous axon, there's still filamentous actin, but it's not coordinated anymore. And, and the biochemistry is such, it's a nitrosylation process. So the, <clears throat> um, so the tyrosines at the terminal end of, of actin get, get nitrosylated, and, and that's what causes this change in function. And, and a complete lack of coordination of beta-2 integrins so that they don't work. But it's a temporary process. This nitrosylation is reversible. And the neutrophils go back to working. They're perfectly viable. We're not killing any cells. Anyway, so we did some of the biochemistry on this. But there's still an evolution. Actually, uh, Bill's no longer with us anymore. But Bill Zamboni's lab in Las Vegas uh, continues to different circumstances that the source of nitric oxide, the, 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 the nitric oxide synthase that gets turned on is different in different scenarios. We actually showed it, it's the endogenous so-called NOS2 or, or inflammatory nitric oxide synthase will do it, but under certain circumstances, it's actually the endothelial lining where the, where the nitric oxide can be coming from uh, that's causing this particular effect. So that's the whirlwind overview of neutrophil responses to hyperbaric oxygen. We're, just, we're going to move on now to a different subject. Going back to our patient, so our view was you're, uh, there's a compromised flap. Acutely, the first minutes to first days, we're talking predominantly about neutrophil responses for hyperbaric oxygen. Why we think about getting someone in the chamber in the from the recovery room, say, with a, with a flap that's looking uh, but over days, the, the, the mechanisms change. We're far more interested, not so much in this acute endothelial process, but actually making new blood vessels, angiogenesis or so-called vasculogenesis when we're talking about stem cells. So we're, we're, and that's the days to weeks of hyperbaric oxygen in, in our patient. So we're going to talk now for a moment about stem cells. Um, so we wrote our first paper on this. Um, in, in 2006. <clears throat> and when I did a PubMed search about a month ago now, it's sort of gratifying to me that one, our one paper in 2006, there's now 101 papers on stem cells and stem cell biology modification with hyperbaric oxygen. We showed mobilization from the bone marrow with, with a protocol. This becomes numbers which are important mechanistically, but for, for clinical stuff, you say, who cares? So long as the thing works, it's all we'll worry about. But, it, but it's a very early effect with, within minutes that, that the early mobilization starts. But then there's actually other effects of hyperbaric oxygen on stem cell function, not just more numbers, but a modification of their behavior. Um, so, so we published our first papers uh, in... in a, irradiated patients, and then in a mouse model. Uh, this was uh, a diabetic study, and then this was a study that I did with one of my fellows looking at dosing, and it turns out that more oxygen gets you a different effect than less oxygen. Chinese have been really big into this, and this is an interesting study because they exactly correlated healing of traumatic wounds with magnitude of mobilization of stem cells with early use of hyperbaric oxygen. Uh, another study looking not so much at mobilization, this is another human study, but looking at engraftment uh, for, for beta uh, islet cell uh, production, basically, to cure diabetes. And this is a more recent study. This, this is a small study, only 15 patients, <clears throat> but looking at using hyperbaric oxygen as an adjunct for classical, sort of traditional bone marrow transplant patients. Not looking at the mobilization phenomenon, but looking at engraftment or, or functionalization of these transplanted stem cells, which they monitored as, uh, as a return of, of numbers of neutrophils and platelets in these patients. So 2006, we did a paper. Um, there's an advancement now. And, and we're, now it's not just humans, but many, many different models uh, and, and different sort of, of attention in terms of stem cell modifications <clears throat> with hyperbaric oxygen, looking not so much at the mobilization phenomenon, but looking at 
uh, at the differentiation, the, the change of behavior of stem cells. And the thing that's interesting to me is uh, the, the veterinarians are really gotten into this. And, and there are horse-sized hyperbaric chambers. And, and the, 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 it's, it's actually the big deal in the racehorse world uh, of uh, interesting literature. In any case, um, so why does hyperbaric oxygen work? Well, it merely piggybacks onto a normal pathway. So in you and I, mobilization of stem cells from our bone marrow happens because of cytokine interactions in the stromal cells. And, and probably the most potent is vascular endothelial growth factor, which interacts with receptors in the stromal cells of the bone marrow on nitric oxide synthase, makes nitric oxide, nitrosylates metalloproteinase 9, it becomes activated. It cleaves a, basically a hormone that's not active when it's, when it's adherent to cells. So one, it used to be called C-kits, now called stem cell factor. Once it's cleaved, it becomes solubilized. It interacts with dormant stem cells in the bone marrow. They enter the cell cycle, the daughter stem cells now mobilize, and they go out into the periphery. This is the normal pathway that was first identified in 2003. We did some work actually preceding this, showing that, not, that hyperbaric oxygen activates nitric oxide synthase. <clears throat> so we said, gee whiz, if that's really true, maybe HBO will do something to this pathway. And it turns out that's exactly what happened. And, and so we could take our mice and put an NO-specific electrode into the bone marrow and demonstrate during a hyperbaric exposure marked elevation of nitric oxide and mobilization of stem cells and show that in mice, show that in people, and so forth. And so this was actually our first paper looking at a, a, a number of patients, 26 patients, who were getting hyperbaric oxygen for a prophylaxis for radionecrosis. They were going to get head and neck surgery done, and it had... A, greater than 6,000 centigrade of radiotherapy. And so this was their stem cells. This, this is flow cytometry mumbo-jumbo. There's different ways of, of, of uh, measuring stem cells, and you can get more or less sophisticated. This is probably the least sophisticated way, but we can talk about that at the end if you want. But in any case, stem cell number in, in the bloodstream of 26 people before the first hyperbaric treatment. Two hours later, stem cells in the circulation are doubled. Ten days later, the, the typical protocol is 20 treatments. So we did this before and after treatment 1, 10, and 20. And so this is before 10, after 10, before 20, after 20. Basically an eight-fold elevation of stem cells in the circulation in one population of patients. Turns out the kinetics in diabetics is different, but, but they still get mobilized. That's the mobilization phenomenon, which is a nitric oxide, nitric oxide synthase activation thing. We also find changes in function of stem cells. Uh, differentiation, we talked about just very briefly. And that's a difference of oxidative stress, not in the stromal cells, but actually in the stem cells themselves. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an oxidative stress response. We did a couple of papers, and some other people have done some since then, where it, it actually what happens, there's, there's reactive oxygen species. The cells respond to that by generating antioxidants. A small peptide called thyroidoxin um, gets turned on. There's more of it. Not only is it an antioxidant, but it actually is a transcription factor. It gets into the nucleus, and it modifies the, um, the hypoxia-inducible factor responsive gene cascade or array. And so this is a flow cytometry picture of HIF-1, in this case, uh, in stem cells before a hyperbaric treatment and after several hyperbaric treatments. So this is a log scale. So that's a lot of HIF. And then the, so that the, the, uh, the functional changes of stem cells are related to actually an augmentation of hypoxia-inducible factors to which everyone says, well, wait a minute, it's hypoxia-inducible factor, which is a bad name, because it should be called free radical uh, factor. It's not, it's, it's not anoxia, it's hypoxia. 
and, and free radicals are what turns on HIF factors. Um, and, and so HIF1 and HIF2 are pro-angiogenic. HIF3 is anti-angiogenic, which not many people know about. Uh, most of the biology is HIF1 and HIF2, which are markedly elevated with the course of HBO. And then we see augmentation of number as well as function. <clears throat> and you can show that really, really well in animals. So this is a chimeric mouse model that we did a, a bunch of years ago, where you could take mice and, and, and make a wound uh, on the limb and make it ischemic by clamping the femoral artery, which obviously you can't do with people. Uh, but but you see profound ischemia. And then over days, you can see restoration of blood flow. Uh, the wound, this, so, so it's a chimeric mouse model. So we can actually count the specific stem cells that are coming from the bone marrow and, and show over a course of HBO, the stem cells go from the bone marrow to this site of wound, and actually we see healing. And so I, pictures with a thousand words. So this is, this is laser Doppler flow of, of the mouse before and after um, surgery. So that's severe ischemia. Um, so over three days and seven days, uh, no treatment in the HBO treatment. This is a, a restoration of blood flow. Uh, and, and this was just sort of the punchline. If an animal is treated with L-nitroarginine methyl ester, which is an inhibitor of nitric oxide synthase, HBO doesn't work, which makes perfect sense in terms of, of mechanisms. Um, we did another study where we could implant matrigel, which is this goo um, that we could implant subcutaneously into mice and then treat them. And, and just show you this picture. So, so this is an air control bit of matrigel in a mouse. And this is after two hyperbaric treatments only. And, and <clears throat> looking so we can take the matrigel and stain for stem cells, we inject in the heart fluorescent beads. So the only way that these beads get out into the periphery is with a functioning blood vessel. Um, so we can see these arcades, this, this really sophisticated arcade, exactly overlapping the stem cells. So this is, by definition, what's called vasculogenesis, new pipes that are generated directly from stem cell differentiation. And you see this, and the difference here is only hyperbaric oxygen in terms of, of a functional change in the stem cells. Um, does hyperbaric oxygen activate nitric oxide synthase in people? Uh, so it's hard to get the volunteers for the anospecific electrode in the bone marrow, but it turns out that, that so it's, it's type 3 nitric oxide synthase that's activated in the bone marrow, which happens to be in platelets. And so, so we did this study a few years ago looking at, at nitric oxide production by platelets from patients. Uh, um, so, so this is so a bunch of diabetic people. Uh, so this is nitric oxide production by platelets in control and a reduction in the diabetics, which other people had shown. Nitric oxide synthase, because of some biochemical changes, doesn't work as well in diabetic population. Uh, and this is the same platelets from these people right after hyperbaric treatment. So you can see uh, basically an activation of this enzyme, which, which mirrors what's going on in the bone marrow. All right, moving on, different subject now inflammation and what happens with hyperbaric oxygen. So, so this is actually something that's going back quite a number of years in terms of hyperbaric oxygen's ability to inhibit a variety of different white cell production of different cytokines, IL-1 beta, IL-6, tumor necrosis factor, or one of the controllers of a lot of these infl inflammatory mediators, NF-kappa B. And actually, the first studies were actually done in humans, which is a little unusual. Um, so, so this is 91, 92. In patients with Crohn's disease and uh, an ulcerative colitis, showing that um, you could take the cells out of the person and expose to hyperbaric oxygen and show turnoff of IL-1 beta, or you could take a patient hyperbaric oxygen, take the cells out of the patient after the treatment and see the same biology. Um, and so now it's, it's been done in mice and rats, not only macrophages uh, and neutrophils, but, but more recently, um, the, the, the white blood cells in the brain, looking at, at microglial and astrocyte responses, or turn off of responses, really, in terms of cytokine production. <clears throat> We've gotten into this more recently, 
This is a paper that came out a few months ago only. Looking at, so this is a neutrophil. So, so many of you know in terms of IL-1 beta or actually many different of these pro-inflammatory substances, they're generated by so-called inflammasomes, which are basically a, a bunch of, well, typically three to six, seven proteins that are not connected to each other in the cytoplasm of a cell. They have to come together in order to synergize, to work, to activate um, the, the caspases that, that activate cytokines. So IL-1 beta is a pro uh, cytokine in cells, not active. Uh, inflammasome becomes activated, IL-1 beta is, is activated. And so you can look at these proteins. So ASC, for short, is the mordant protein for, for the so-called NLRP3 inflammasome. Uh, and NAP3 is another one of these proteins. And if they come together in the magic of, of, of uh, microscopy, its exact overlap is yellow. So this is an activated neutrophil, and you can see a picture of basically an active NLRP3 inflammasome. After hyperbaric oxygen, the stimulation does not activate the inflammasome. And this turns out to be another example of changing the, the filamentous actin behavior of cells, which is why this happens. But basically, this is a turn off of inflammasome production. And that's the biochemistry of why HBO changes, is an anti-inflammatory effect. This particular study was done with decompression sickness. You say, well, what the heck does that have to do with anything? And it turns out it's the high-pressure inner, inner gases are, are, are chemically inert, but they're by no means biologically inert. And, and, and high-pressure nitrogen argon helium activates white cells. And, and you see lots and lots of IL-1 beta, which is bad for you. And, and you can turn that off with hyperbaric oxygen, which is the, probably the one thing everyone will agree on you should treat with, with, with hyperbaric oxygen. Um, so, so this was a decompression model. And, and I'll, well, actually, the paper is not out yet. The exact same thing happens with neutrophils that are activated by hyperglycemia, exactly that matches the typical diabetic patient. Um, so, so you can do the same thing with different stimuli. For time, we're moving on now. So that's the anti-inflammatory story. Now there's growth factor effects by hyperbaric oxygen, which turns out to be a, a very fertile ground that, that, quite frankly, we have not got a lot of mechanisms for. <clears throat> there's lots of variables in terms of cells, pressures that are involved, durations of exposure, or days of intermittent exposure. And I, I use this as just one paper for a variety of reasons, but this is human dermal fibroblasts. But a study that's been done ex vivo uh, at different pressures. Um, so this is one atmosphere. Now, say, well, that's not hyperbaric. But in fact, it is. Because mixed venous PO2 is 40. You put someone in a hyperbaric chamber, mixed venous is now, <clears throat> give or take, several hundred millimeters of mercury. Um, 760 is typically what you're going to get closest to an arteriolar side in a well-perfused vascular bed. So an ex vivo study in a, in a test tube done at 760 millimeters of mercury is, in fact, a hyperbaric oxygen experiment, um, which a lot of people don't get. But, but it's, it's merely a PO2 phenomenon. But in any case, back to the story. So, so this is ger human dermal fibroblasts with a hyperoxic exposure. And, and the point here is hyperoxic exposure, you can look at different growth factors and get a different response, a different magnitude of response. They're both activated. But then you see different behavior with higher PO2s. And that's just two growth factors. But there's lots of other studies looking at different growth factors. And, and the kinetics are somewhat different depending upon the model. But in all of these examples, some are, are ex vivo studies. Some of them are actually um, animal studies or, or, well, tissue studies, showing that, that hyperbaric oxygen will activate synthesis of, of a variety of different growth factors, which can have different responses depending upon what you're looking at in terms of, of activation or, or changing, say, wound healing. Um, 
and, and they all appear to be free radical mediated events based on, on you do these studies with antioxidants, one or more or less selective, and you can turn off different responses. Uh, but, but the actual genetics, which genes are turned on, most of those studies haven't been done yet. So there's lots of room for more work. Um, so I'm going to just summarize now. I think we're doing OK for time. Um, what we've done, so hyperbaric oxygen has many, many different effects. A very simple notion. You throw someone into this gizmo, jack up the pressure and the oxygen, but you get a lot of different biochemical effects depending upon the cells and the tissue that you're looking at. So you improve oxygen delivery, duh. That probably has some effects in terms of hypoxic zones. People think about that in terms of some of the uh, antibacterial effects, treating anaerobes like clostridium with hyperbaric oxygen. You probably do get a little bit of an effect. <clears throat> Interestingly, with the clostridium story, you really don't knock off many organisms, but you, sh you change their physiology, and they no longer make the exotoxin which is really the clinical side of gas gangrene, which is sort of a trivial story. Bubble reduction is important probably for, for decompression sickness, air embolism, but it's turning out that, that those diseases, which everyone thinks about bubbles, it's probably not the bubbles that are causing the, the tissue injury. It's an inflammatory process, uh, which we and other people are working on. Tissue oxygen gradients change with, with hyperbaric oxygen. You get changes of oxidation reduction potential, which have effects in terms of making the environment less favorable for, for facultative and anaerobic organisms, um, better white cell function. We've talked about the beta 2 integrin story in terms of temporary inhibition of beta 2 integrin function, the ischemia reperfusion story, anti-inflammatory effects mostly focused on a, on a, a down regulation of cytokine production. Stem cell mobilization, the nitric oxide story in the bone marrow, that's turning out also to be a little bit more complicated. Turns out, there's probably many of you know, there's, there's stem cells not only in the bone marrow, but many, many different beds. Adipose tissue is a very rich source of stem cells. And it's turning out um, you can get more sophisticated in terms of, of the markers you use <clears throat> It's a study that actually NIH is good enough to give us a little bit of money. We have a study going on right now looking at different populations of stem cells that you can do with different markers on the cell surface. And, and it's turning out there are many, many different populations of stem cells that are modified by one or another treatment. Um, the mobilization, say, from adipose tissue, we have no idea of what the biochemistry is there. It may be exactly the same story. But, but we don't know. Uh, so, so there's the mobilization story with hyperbaric oxygen. And then there's the, the modification of stem cell behavior, the differentiation. I showed you the arcades and the matrigel, which is, which is a change not just of mere numbers of stem cells, but, but the biology of stem cells is also profoundly modified, uh, again, looking very much like um, an oxidative stress response because of genes that are switched on or in some cases switched off by transient hyperoxia. And then there's the, the, the growth factor story, uh, which is very complex depending upon the specific area you want to look. And then we're still finding more stuff. It's turning out to be a very rich thing. Now, back to our patient. So, Compromised grafts and flaps we treat with hyperbaric oxygen. What are the data that say, yeah, this is really a good idea? Well, turns out that there's tons of examples. Now, it's hard to get the human volunteers to set up a compromised flap, because that would not be a good idea. So, so defining compromise in the clinical sphere is actually kind of difficult. And it's an art form more than it is a hard science. And so so I'm, I'm the mere ED doc, and so I, I said that the surgeon says, that flap is not looking good. And I go, fine, no argument from me. You say it's compromised or it looks bad, we will treat that patient. You can define this far more rigorously in an animal model. You can set up a flap that's destined to fail. 
And, and so you can do the randomized trials where clearly a population is going to fail, use hyperbaric, and the population now, the flaps survive. And so a lot of these are, are animal studies. Some of them are clinical studies. And I'm just going to show you a review that is only clinical cases. So it's not a very well-read journal uh, because it's in our field, underseen hyperbaric medicine. Uh, 32, 23 clinical studies not all of them are randomized. Therapeutic efficacy of hyperbaric oxygen, 63 to 100%. 16 controlled studies, 12 were randomized trials. And, and I just list them here. So, so this is a randomized study looking at patients' relatively large population with standard therapy or use of HBO. And the point here is success rates with routine and, and with hyperbaric oxygen are, are substantially elevated with use of hyperbaric oxygen. Again, it's, it's a little bit of hand-waving because you, you, you still are left with define for me a compromised flap or, or graft in some cases. And, and that's not a very easy thing to do clinically. So you do relatively large numbers with and without hyperbaric oxygen, and you can see a difference. Um, some of these are worrisome, and I'll just point out that no surgeon would be terribly happy with a 50% success rate. Um, so, so exactly what's going on in some of these studies, say, well, I don't really know. But, but nonetheless, with hyperbaric oxygen, you see these changes. Anyway, so those are the, the good parts. Now, so I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the risks. Turns out the risks of hyperbaric oxygen really are not very high. The, the thing we worry about the most is central nervous system oxygen toxicity, which is manifest as a grand mal seizure. It happens about 1 in 10,000 cases. So it's really rare. Um, but, but we'll see it. We'll see someone will have a seizure in a hyperbaric chamber, which is really easy to control. If, if you're in a multiple chamber, you take the mask off the patient, PO2 goes down, they stop seizing. Or you can use benzodiazepines or all of the normal things that you do. Um, we know based on a lot of work actually done at Penn long before I got there, um, there is no long-term adverse effect of a, of a hyperbaric oxygen-induced seizure, um, brain damage or otherwise, based on imaging or functional studies. So we don't really worry about it that much, but, but managing it is something you have to take care of. Um, th there's peripheral pulmonary oxygen toxicity which is very difficult actually even to monitor. Um, the typical protocols, we won't even see any pulmonary effects. PFT studies or, or lavage fluid or any more sophisticated studies with the typical protocols. I mentioned up front that, that the, the typical treatment is only a couple of hours long. If you put someone in a hyperbaric chamber and you leave them there for six hours or so, you can start to get symptoms of coronal irritation, a little bit of pain, a little bit of reduction of, of vital capacity. But it takes many hours of exposure uh, before you'll see pulmonary O2 toxicity. And, and with the typical protocols, you can't even find it. Um, but, but we do see CNS effects uh, on rare occasion. And that turns out to actually also be uh, this, the, the biochemistry of, of an oxygen-induced seizure is still being worked out but it's turning out to probably be uh, oxidative stress gone awry, uh, and, and it may have very much to do with nitrosylation of enzymes, which is more than we probably need to talk about. So to finish up, where are we? Well, I'll say we need more basic research, and my day is rarely the eureka event. It's, it's far more the opposite, uh, as is true for most scientists. Um, but, but, but we need lots more basic work. I've sort of, I've covered what we know, and I've tried to give you a sort of sense of what we don't know. Um, so, so we're just beginning to figure out what's going on. We need lots more clinical trials, but we need clinical trials not only in sort of the big pictures, the randomized trials, but, but in terms of, of, of the fine points of how much oxygen, how many times you need to treat, um, all of these are open questions, and, and my pitch for now going on decades uh, has been that not many clinical trials have been done with the notion of why the heck hyperbaric oxygen works in the first place. 
and, and, and I've been saying for a long time, no one's paying any attention to me, but, uh, uh, which is the norm. Um, but but th if, if there was an incorporation of why HBO works, we could be a lot smarter in terms of, of how we set up clinical trials. But there's, there's lots of room for, for more work in, in all of these areas. And, and with that, I leave on time and can open it up for questions. But thank you for your attention. So we, you know, we say like the Mars Protocol, you get right. 20 dyes before extractions and you get 10 dyes after, and it's based on research that was done like... With, with crummy tools. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and, and one of the questions that we always ask is like, so how many treatments, uh, is there, because, you know, 20 treatments for Mr. Smith might be adequate, but 40 for Mrs. Jones might right. be... Adequate. Or maybe 10. Right, exactly. And yeah. So BID dosing versus daily, and, and we've and Joe, Jay and I have sort of talked about this for years. Like, are there any ways of looking at markers that, that tell you like when you've reached an adequate uh, sort of dosing for these patients? Easy answer, no. <laughs> We're not smart enough. I mean, it's it's a it's a great question, and and everyone sort of scratches their head and goes, you know, do we really need to wait a month before we can do something? Uh, or if, if, say, for example, the, the guys at Duke, they treat BID. Uh, and I go, well, you know, everyone else, most people do Q-Day. Um, are their success rates different at 10 days BID versus 20 days at Penn or, or wherever else? And they've never published their results. And, and you know, go figure. Um, so so I, I've, I've worried about those questions, too. But... The bottom line is it, it, it's a terrific study you could do uh, to, to get some very practical information. Uh, you know, how long do you need to wait? For some people, it's a big deal. Uh, but we don't have good answers for that at all. Yes? Uh, so that was a really interesting talk. I, I deal mainly with diabetes, and it struck me that things like oxidative stress and growth factors are thought to be the mechanism by which microvascular complications occur. Yep. Yep. So I'm curious, first, whether uh, hyperbaric oxygen has ever been useful for microvascular diabetic complications, and secondly, do you worry about that with someone with active retinopathy who you're going to treat for something else? Excellent question. So, so we actually did, we, there, there have been a number of investigations not terribly well reported. So diabetic retinopathy is not exacerbated by hyperbaric oxygen. Now, why? We don't really know because, I mean, the, the whole, I mean, which growth factor is being modified that leads to the diabetic retinopathy to start with, and, and then the secondary fibrosis and, you know, the ripping away of the retina and all the rest of the thing. It's, it's not exacerbated by, by a course of hyperbaric oxygen. Um, fertile ground to figure out what exactly is going on, but, but that's sort of the, the punchline answer. Now, the, the other part, in terms of angiogenesis with hyperbaric oxygen, I mean, a lot of, of, of diabetic foot wounds, it's, it's a microvascular story more so, and not telling you anything you don't already know. Um, and, and there's, there's a, a, most things in hyperbaric oxygen are big fights. So, so there are data that hyperbaric oxygen improves healing in diabetic foot wounds. There's also some studies that I've been part of that failed to show that working out, which probably is a lot of the fine points of dosing and, and, and other things, why there's different clinical responses. But there's a fairly decent literature that you can actually precipitate or drive angiogenesis, vasculogenesis stem cells, in, in, in microvascular ischemic wounds in diabetic patients. We think it's the same mechanism in radiotherapy, probably different fine points, but sort of the big parts look to be more the same than different. So it's, it's a huge clinical question in terms of what exactly is going on in, in, in different vascular beds. Uh, and, and, you know, you can do animal models. The animal models work pretty well in terms of showing augmentation of function. Uh, it's the translation of the clinical world, which, which is the art form. 
uh, because if you know people are at different stages of their disease, different magnitude of ischemia, different mix of micro and macular vascular dysfunction. Um, so so the, the population is very, very heterogeneous, uh, which is a huge challenge in terms of any randomized trial that you want to do. So, so it's an open area um, that looks to be a favorable thing for, for hyperbaric oxygen clinical use. Yeah? So related to that, many of your patients may have proteinuria, and like in the kidney, like the photosize and the digest could be healthy, and most mediators are also indicated in proteinuria. So what happens to the proteinuria in, in your patients? I mean, not that bad. Well, there's no... So in, we don't see any acceleration of... Uh, renal disease, you know, but but that's that's pretty gross. That, so that's we don't have a, I don't have a good answer for you in terms of magnitude of proteinuria. Say. I'm sorry. What? We don't see a change in that clinically. But I don't think there's ever been, I don't believe there's ever, ever been a very concerted study looking at that question, quite honestly. Yeah. So I have another question. Sometimes there are kids who inhale helium to make their voice squeaky, and so the concern is that you could potentially get a stroke from that. Could that be, an, uh, I don't know how true that is, you know, is that, could that be an indication for hyperbaric oxygen? Wait a second. <laughs> so, so breathing helium, you, I mean, you get a resonant change in your vocal cords. And you, what, what's the risk? Air embolism? Is that what you said? Well, you know, sometimes you see that, and actually sometimes the helium is supplied by parents, and you wonder if that's a good idea because it's very buoyant. And so when you look it up, apparently it is possible to get a stroke from this. So it must be an overexpansion injury, a tearing of pulmonary... Parenchyma. Well, if it's if it's from helium, so the only way I can put that together is that there has been an overexpansion injury, an inflation, a pulmonary injury, uh, a gas embolism that goes to the brain and causes stroke. So that's cerebral air embolism, which is an indication for hyperbaric oxygen uh, for, for two issues. One is squashing bubbles, Boyle's law. Uh, and indeed, so we'll treat uh, iatrogenic air embolism. More often than not, it's dialysis patients who get their plumbing disconnected and uh, who, who have a stroke. And, and if you get them into the hyperbaric chamber early on, it's very dramatic. The, the stroke goes away. Uh, they get a rapid restoration of, of their, their neurological dysfunction. Uh, because you squash the bubble. So it's, it's just, it's, you, you take away the ischemic hit. Now, turns out it's, the story's more complicated than that because bubbles rolling along the endothelial lining cause huge activation of the endothelium. Uh, in, in some cases, rips the endothelium right off the, 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 the matrix. Uh, in other cases, you can get a change of adhesion molecules. In any case, it turns into an inflammatory process as the, the bubbles are showered distally. So it's, it's not just merely plugging up blood vessels with a big bubble. But, but in that scenario, it would be early use. Uh, you would use hyperbaric oxygen. If I had a kid who, who did that and took a big breath and stroked out, I would say that's an air embolism until proved otherwise. And I would throw them in the hyperbaric chamber absolutely as quickly as possible. Okay. Yeah, so um, just getting back to that case, so um, I think one of the paradoxes, I guess, in uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is you think of this as area that's been ischemic for a while, and now you're going to put a bunch of reactive oxygen species into it. Right. That should be a bad thing, right? Uh -huh. It should create reperfusion injury. And so do you feel like we have an understanding about why that is it, is the beta integrant the story why that isn't as bad as we think it should be? Yeah, well, so in, in the animals, you can, you can do this. So, so 
is beta 2 integrins really the story? Is that like an epiphenomenon, as it were? Um, so so in, in, we've done a couple of different animal models where uh, to, to focus on that, you can do a control uh, with, with beta 2 integrin antibodies. So, so you can, which is not a good thing, because that permanently turns off the neutrophils. But you get exactly the same transient benefit with a beta 2 integrin antibody as you do with hyperbaric oxygen. Uh, now, you would never do that clinically because that's immunocompromised. And the fine print is when those studies are done, the animal will die from uh, overwhelming sepsis about five days later, uh, which doesn't happen with HB, hyperbaric oxygen, of course. But, but so, so we, you can hone in, in in animal models on the beta 2 integrin part of the story with, with other measures. Okay, thank you.